Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am doing great. I'm excited to learn today. I'm excited to learn as well. This is uh, kind of always a topic that we find uh, is on the tip of everybody's lips. We're going to be looking to the relationship between large banks and crypto. Uh, whether it's a Jamie Dimon headline about hating Bitcoin or some large bank making a press release, uh, we've seen banks dismissing Bitcoin. Now things are somewhat different. Some large banks are even offering crypto custody. Uh, and indeed, regulators have moved their position on that quite a little bit. So what's changed? Uh, what is the role of a bank in crypto? I thought the whole idea was getting rid of banks, right? Well, we're going to unpack all of this and hopefully ask some of the right questions and see what's behind the beginnings of a change of heart. Because you may notice looking at the show notes here, we don't actually have a big bank on the show, um, but we did reach out to a whole lot of them. And uh, we also had some organizational issues that meant the ones that could join couldn't make our schedule. But we love you big bankers that we did reach out to and we'll have you back on at some point, I'm sure. All right, to dive into this topic though, we do have some pretty amazing guests. Uh, joining us from uh, the financial news is Emily Nicole. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, remind the listeners who you are and what you do. So I'm the fintech correspondent at Financial News, which is a Dow Jones publication in London. Um, you may have heard me appear quite frequently on Fintech Insider, but this is my first time on Blockchain Insider. So I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to getting to the discussion. Excited to have you, Emily. Always one of our regulars because of the insights you bring. Uh, and alongside Emily, we have Edward Woodford, who is co-founder and CEO at ZeroHash. So good to have you on the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and ZeroHash, please. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, joining you from a very chilly Chicago today. Um, so ZeroHash is a uh, B2B embedded infrastructure player that basically enables any group to launch digital assets natively within their own infrastructure. So think of us as defining this new vertical of crypto as a service, um, embedding crypto through a couple of lines of code uh, without the need for any regulatory um, overhead or any big technical build. Fantastic. That as a service space just keeps on growing. Um, all right, great to have you all on board. Let's get started. Uh, over to you, Kai. Yeah, so we're going to start off from the very beginning of the interactions between large banks and cryptocurrencies. And then we're going to look further into the details as we go along. So let's start with you, Simon. As, as an ex-big banker yourself, you know, how has this relationship progressed since you've been watching it closely, you know, really over the past you know, six years? It, it's been kind of crazy. So as you mentioned, yes, I'm a recovering banker. Um, it sounds like a, a, you know, it's kind of a lot of things that are recovering. But uh, for my sins, being at the front line of this, uh, certainly uh, a bank is uh, many things, not just one thing. It has an innovation department. It has lots of other things. And I was actually in an innovation department at a bank back in 2014 when the subject of crypto was really first coming around. And I'm a veteran of all of the press releases in uh, 2016. 16 and 17, where every bank would say things like, we love the technology, but not the currency. And that was sort of the meme of the time, that this was an amazing new technology that could potentially reduce cost for the big banks, but wasn't going to be a material or credible threat to those banks. 
Uh, and indeed, out of that, we saw a number of things born. We saw uh, Hyperledger, we saw R3's Corda, and quietly in the background, those things in the past five or six years have gone on to become really quite credible with central banks and global regulators as an almost regulated off-ramp, um, if you could put it that way. And then in the uh, intervening sort of five or six years, uh, the bankers sort of stopped paying attention to crypto when the price went down. And so did the regulators. As the prices come back and suddenly the bankers' customers have started demanding access to this new asset class, then we've seen lots of different things start to emerge, whether it's a large bank offering crypto custody or really brokering crypto through their, uh, through their desks or through their wealth management divisions. You know, the mood music has, has sort of changed. Um, but we have to remember that banks are risk averse in their nature. They are going to be the last ones that can really adopt something because it's so very hard for them to do it. They have the highest level of regulatory scrutiny and they have the highest level uh, of expectation from regulators that they've done their homework. It is easier always for a bank to say no than it is to say yes. And I would argue that maybe the measure of success of crypto is not necessarily uh, how quickly the big banks move towards it, but how seriously and methodically they do. So it's been uh, kind of a rocky road, um, but you know, like all these things, they can be slowly counselled and, and and mended. So I, I'm interested in other views. I mean, Emily, you've you've been watching this space for for quite some time. Would how would you characterise that change? Well, I think if you think back to where we were this time last year. Um, so it's November now as we're recording, but it was around October 2020 that the Bitcoin boom, as we call it, for, for this time around kicked off. And that was started because of institutional investors and banks getting involved. Um, and the way that they did that was through vehicles like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Um, so we started to see more institutional investors start to think about how they could incorporate crypto assets like Bitcoin in their portfolios, seeing it as a way to diversify their investments, maybe a bit of an inflation hedge. Some of the banks like JP Morgan started calling it a digital gold, which is still a pervasive idea at the moment, but um, it's starting to change quite a lot now as crypto progresses. Um, and so I think if you if you think about the change that's happened in just 12 months, it's significant, right? That Now we have most of the big banks at least having some stance on crypto that they probably didn't have before at a very minimum. And as you said, um, Simon, we've got a lot of banks now that are considering trading desks. But you're right in that the biggest block to them is regulation. Um, a lot of the banks, they can't custody Bitcoin and other crypto assets because of the way the rules prevent them from doing so. Um, so now it's almost like we've got to the point where banks are starting to think like, yes, we want crypto. Yes, we want to have some some stake in this market. But the regulation has to catch up to them next. Um, and so over the next I guess the next 12 months, if we think about the next leg of the journey, it's going to be for the regulators to catch up and start to give those those banks their biggest clients, if you will, um, the space to grow within that region. Indeed. And because we know the OCC uh, does allow for banks in the US to custody crypto assets. And indeed, Kraken has a, a, a charter now to be able to do exactly that, one of the largest crypto exchanges. Uh, and so there is the common complaint that you hear, uh, the meme amongst bankers, uh, that, that I think there's a couple of them, 
Complaint number one is uh, it's it's quote unquote not regulated. Well, fundamentally, that's just not true. the The CFTC has defined Bitcoin and to some extent Ethereum as commodities, um, as an asset class. They uh, also have uh, identified full KYC AML requirements that uh, under a money transmission license, and in Europe we would see that under the Fifth Anti Money Laundering Directive. Uh, and then similarly, uh, when it comes to kind of how you really look after customers and consumer protection, there's lots of uh, good advancements there coming coming on that side as well. Um, Edward, I want to come to you. You've also been in this game for, for quite some time. When you first started ZeroHash, did you expect the bigger banks to be entering the world or did you just hope that was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, these things have moved super quickly. I think that the, the pace at which it's happened in a, in a compressed period of time has definitely been, um, in, you know, interesting. Um, I mean, our, our thesis was always that the dominoes would fall, right? And that you'd get these initial players start, and then you'd get these fast followers afterwards. I mean, I, I truly believe when we look at banks, what are the drivers that drive, you know, in, incentivize those movements and uh, it lead to, um, you know, people like Jamie Diamond walking back some of the statements that they've made about digital assets? I think it's about competitive threats, right? And, and I think there's a couple. One is, Online banks um, at this point, or, or, or neobanks, um, are, are one of those drivers um, in terms of aggregation of assets. I do believe that in the next um, 12 months, every single large challenger bank within the United States, or at least the top 10, will have some form of digital asset product. That is material, that those are people that they see as potentially competitive drivers. I also think if you look more broadly at the payment space, um, and you look at the t some banks that effectively act as sponsor banks um, downstream from the, p the flow of funds, they are clearly looking at digital assets and saying, wow, that can be very disruptive to our business. Um, or it can also be an opportunity. So as we look to interact with Web 3.0 and additional pieces, they realize that you need this bridge between the traditional fiat world and the crypto world. And so I think that there's this, on the, at least on the payment side, there's this duality that's taking place, which is there's a threat that maybe we get cut out, but also there's an opportunity for those that move more quickly. Interesting. Yeah, the, the threat opportunity balance is always the, the hard one to, to try and manage if you're an incumbent. And Kai, do you think that uh, consumer interest is playing a role here with, you know, sort of, consumers potentially switching banks or switching who their primary fintech application is uh, if somebody offers crypto? Yeah, I think it, consumers are absolutely voting with their wallets on, on the types of services they want to use. And we're really interested to see you know, what impact and what level of interest there was. So we actually, we did a survey recently that we're going to be publishing soon. And we talked to about 6,400 people in eight countries. So this was global U.S., U.K., Germany, Australia, Hong Kong, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and South Africa. And we wanted to, to talk to the head of the household finances, whoever was responsible for finance. And what we saw was that you know, about 94% of respondents are aware of crypto. You know, it's hard not to have heard of crypto at this point. About a third of the respondents said they already use or hold crypto. And then we saw that 39% of those crypto owners said they're likely to switch their primary bank to one that offers crypto services in the next 12 months. And so it's not just that the ownership is growing, but the people who own it actively want to use services that provide access to crypto as an asset class. And so it feels like 
you know, the interest in crypto has to be driving a lot of uh, attention from bankers who you know want to find ways that they can acquire customers and retain them. Uh, but I'm curious, Emily, how how you think about you know this shift of haven't a lot of banks looked at this as high net worth? You know, let's provide you know institutional investors with exposure to crypto assets. It feels like there's this consumer push now, and so if you've seen a shift between providing it just for institutions versus now consumers as well. Yeah, I think that's totally accurate. And that if we think about the banks that are going big on crypto, it's almost always from an institutional perspective. It's about allowing wealth clients access to a crypto asset as as, as akin to an asset that you would put in your portfolio, um, like oil or copper or any of the other commodities. But on a consumer standpoint, at least in the UK, most of the high street banks have not been that crypto friendly, right? If we think back to all the problems that Binance was having not so long ago over the summer, we had a massive wash of all the high street banks coming forward and saying, okay, well, we're not going to allow our consumers and our customers to to engage with Binance. And that kind of I called it earlier um, earlier this month, like the, a moral panic about cryptocurrencies, that kind of moral panic about allowing consumers to access unregulated assets like crypto, even if it's not happening for the high net worth individuals that we think are experienced investors is still very common among high street banks. Um, and so it's I don't know, you say that consumers are voting with their feet. And I think, yeah, it's true. A lot of a lot more consumers are willing to get involved in crypto this year than they were this time last year but it's whether or not their banks are going to allow them to engage in the way that they want to. Um, and who knows, maybe the big thing to change that could be CBDCs. Well, indeed. Um, and we can come on to that point, but I think it's so interesting, the difference in the banking markets between the UK and the US um, and a lot of Europe. You know, In Europe, Binance has largely been locked out of a lot of markets because they have no access to the financial rails. The on and off ramp has largely been squashed. In the US, there is such... Uh, a variety of banks that will be functionally much harder to achieve. Uh, and then also given given the nature of the OCC and some of the responses there, it would also be a lot harder to, to kind of pull off. So that's powerful. And again, it's interesting, Emily, you use the term unregulated. Uh, there, are, That perception is still there. But to my mind, there is no evidence that crypto is unregulated whatsoever. It's actually one of the most highly regulated asset classes on the planet. Most asset classes are regulated in one single dimension. Crypto is regulated from five or six different dimensions. It also is uh, powerfully transparent. So the, there's this real issue around perception versus reality that I think is very, very important. Uh, no doubt there are risks and we can come back to, to what those are, but I think it's uh, this sudden boom in popularity that also worries people that we might be in the middle of a speculative bubble, uh, which is actually arguably possibly what's helping people vote with their feet, but is also what the large banks worry is exposing consumers to a level of financial risk that they can't bear, but that perhaps somebody with who could afford to lose that amount of money would be. So that's, and that was always what the, the uh, investor protection rules were based on. The flip side of you can afford to lose money is you get access to benefit from growth. The flip side of you can't afford to lose money is you can't also afford to benefit from growth. In fact, you have a 0.5% savings account as your best option in the market against 6% inflation. So Emily, sorry, you wanted to jump in there. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I was just going to say, yeah, you're right. It's important to clarify by when we say unregulated, we mean in the eyes of something like the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, who say it's unregulated. And that kind of that feeds into this this moral panic with the high street banks, because in their mind, you know, they are the traditional players in the space. It's almost like how we're seeing everything happen again when the fintech banks first arrived and they thought, you know, well, we're not going to go anywhere near Monzo or Starling or Revolut. Um those banks aren't going to do anything that the FCA doesn't think is okay because it's just they think it's too risky for them. Banks were never going to be the ones in the beginning to push out the boat in terms of offering new features for consumers in the fintech boom. And we're seeing it happen again now with crypto. Um, and so that's kind of where this whole scare factor comes in, I guess. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that the productization element is, is super important. And that's something that we're starting to see more so with neobanks versus the traditional banks, just because they tend to be more um, you know, earlier in the, in the in the process. So what we're seeing, um, and these are tangible case studies, is people are interested in supporting digital assets, actually supporting all more investment products for their clients, but they take the view that it needs to be done in a different way. So it doesn't mean that you open up the ability to buy and sell crypto. Um, you can integrate crypto without the need for that to be the product. So for example, we've supported in a ton of different platforms and now supporting, for example, crypto rewards or crypto roundups. Um, and so their position is, look, if 70% of Americans today don't have $1,000 for an unexpected expense, do we really want them um, trading? Do we want them trading crypto or do we want them trading stocks? The likely answer is no. But to your point, Simon, um, that also is has the flip side that it prevents the aggregation of wealth. And so the way that people are looking at aggregation of wealth, I think, for at least lower score FICO's clients, which is a huge part of at least the US population, is by productizing all investment products in different ways. So for example, fractional stocks. Well, crypto is great at doing fractional pieces. And so things like rewards and roundups, I think is super, super important. I also think another part of the story that can't be ignored is bank holding companies. So if you look at, for example, in the US, Charles Schwab, you look at E-Trade, two of the largest brokerages um, that exist, the reason that they haven't necessarily jumped in whilst others have, including groups like Interactive Brokers and many others, is because they're bank holding companies. And so I think the story is a lot broader than just, hey, banks, but it's also the bank holding companies and how that affects their subsidiaries um, downstream. Kai, I, I think there's uh, some really interesting trends here around the percentage of crypto ownership and adoption, because I wonder if the the horse has bolted, the train has left the station, pick your metaphor, that actually the, the banks and some of the regulators trying to, quote unquote, protect the consumer, guess what? It's too late. The consumer has choice. The consumer has voted. Uh, they're already there in crypto. The question now is, can the, to, to Edward's point, start to do this in a responsible way? So have you seen the uh, trends in percentage of adoption anyway? Yeah, absolutely. When we talk to banks across the world, you know, one of the things that has really stood out is the interest in crypto rewards right now. I think there is broad recognition that there is consumer demand for it. You know, in the, the same survey that, that I referenced, so I mentioned about a third of respondents said they already use or hold crypto, but 57% of respondents were interested in crypto-backed rewards. And so I think people have found that this is a way that not only are people who are already into crypto excited about earning it, but consumers who are you know not the early adopters, who are more risk-averse, maybe they don't have the money to invest, you know, they're not ready to go out and set up 
set up an account on a crypto exchange and buy and sell, but the ability to earn Bitcoin or crypto back is this really exciting engagement you know, feature that brings people back into the app. And I think that even the volatility of crypto there, when it's a small amount and used as a reward, so you didn't have to, to spend your own money for it, that drives repeat usage of people who are checking what the price and the value of their rewards are versus how often do you log into your uh, you know, credit card or debit card account and really track the value of, of a loyalty point reward. You don't expect that it's going to go up in, t- up in value. You expect it's probably going to decrease. And so I think that's been a kind of a stepping stone as an easy way to get into the space. But then if you offer Bitcoin rewards, then someone needs a way to sell it. And so now consumers are earning and they're selling. It'll be interesting to see what the timeline is to go from earning and selling to now enabling buying, supporting more assets, enabling other features within that. Kai, as you say, that's a super low risk entry point, but it sort of is just that, that you could start to go more from there. There's a great stat um, I have in my show notes here that apparently 55% of the world's top 100 banks reportedly have crypto and blockchain exposure of some sort. Um, so there's a sense of momentum there. But um, there's there's the bank's p- opinion. And Emily, there's also the uh, public opinion. Um, so Kai gave some good examples there in terms of uh, the the kind of uh, low risk ways in and and, and uh, some consumer uh, stats earlier on in the day uh, but public opinion they always say when you know when people in the uh, in the salon and the hairdressers are talking about um, stocks it's time to sell and certainly I end up in taxis and having more conversations about crypto than just about anything at the moment you know, is there a point here that public opinion has moved but that might not be a good thing yeah I mean I think when Kai was speaking, actually, what was coming to my mind was the risk of education. So this might be a super low risk entry point for consumers to access crypto because they're only getting a little bit. They're not having to put their own money up for Bitcoin, but they can receive a little bit back on a purchase and dabble in it that way. But I think that's something that has to come in tandem with that is education. Right. And that's why regulators are so concerned is that this is still a market where people need to understand what they're getting into. If you think about the investor um, revival, as as you'd call it, of 2021, with a lot more people getting into the idea of trading stocks and shares because of things like GameStop and AMC and, and just the general presence of stocks news just being in your everyday media, that was a massive learning curve for consumers in January or February. And now they're having to get to grips with crypto as well. And I think the problem is, is that the idea of crypto as an investment or crypto is something you can use in your everyday spending. People still haven't really got their heads around it in a large scale enough way, in a mainstream enough way for regulators and banks to become unilaterally um, comfortable with it to then think about allowing things at crypto awards to go ahead. So you're only going to see it from those innovators because those are the only ones willing to take that leap. And until we get more more education in the space that is being reached out and until we have people like the UK's Financial Conduct Authority not saying things like, well, only one in 10 people have seen our warnings about the risks of crypto assets, you're not really going to get any kind of leaps forward in the space of crypto rewards. Uh, the, the UK regulator, uh, I would argue that the FCA was a leading light in the world for many, many years on all things innovation, uh, but it is really changed its tone in, in the past 18 months or so. Uh, and it, it's it's often sort of 
confusing to consumers to see a regulator make these statements uh, without materially offering uh, advice, education, and other things around it. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to do a lot more of that. Uh, sorry, Kai, you were about to jump in. Yeah, that was going to be one of, one of my questions is like, I feel like I haven't seen from both regulators and, and banks a notion of different risks for different crypto assets. It seems like all crypto assets are kind of lumped together of crypto assets are risky. And then there seems to be kind of a consumer backlash, like, oh, of course you're saying that. And then it's kind of you know losing credibility of I like crypto and you say all crypto is bad versus more nuance of there are risks that Bitcoin has. And then there are risks that meme coins and other longer tail tokens have. So maybe, Edward, how do you think about that? Of like, is all crypto, should it be seen the same way from banks and regulators? Or is there nuance that's needed in terms of how consumers are educated about the risks per assets that are chosen? How do you think about which assets you make available with, with your partners? Yeah, so I think... Um Nuance is one of the biggest issues in, in, in this entire space, right? Is that we we treat everything with the broad brush of crypto. I mean, crypto is a very broad term, even there, right? Are, are we including, for example, NFTs, um, or, or are we not? And then you know we've got thousands of coins now that now exist. From from, from our perspective, um, the the predominant concern from most of our clients that are regulated, including groups that have licensing equivalent to a bank or close to a bank, um, is around confusion from the client's perspective that the assets are not FDIC insured or under the SIPC framework, effectively saying that there are additional risks here. Um, Look, I mean, if you look at the equities market, there's obviously the pink sheets, the penny stocks, which is very different to the the, the, the large market cap um, assets. But I do think when we talk about education of clients, what do we mean by education, right? Um, what, What do we actually want? Um, to educate clients on. Um, the space is evolving very, very quickly. Do we want people to understand the white paper, for example? Do we want people to be technologists? I mean, it, it's really, really challenging. I think the key thing that we always stress that we require from a front-end perspective um, is ensuring that clients know that this is not like a stock. This is not like holding assets in the bank. And that being made abundantly clear that these things can go to zero. Um, and I think that's really, honestly, the, the, key, the key piece that you can do. The challenge here is that you you don't want to create regulatory arbitrage, either geographically or even from a platform perspective, right? And I think you're starting to see this. So a client that we spoke to the other day um, is actually regulated as a bank. They consider themselves a neobank, but they're actually regulated as a bank. Um, And what really triggered their shift internally was they did an analysis of the outflows um, from from their systems and looked at how how many dollars were going to, you know, groups like Coinbase, Gemini, um, any any crypto exchange. And that high threshold was pretty high. And so they took the view that, hey, in an ideal world, we probably wouldn't offer crypto, but it's better that we offer crypto here than elsewhere. And that's how they view it now, is that this is here, people want it, but is it better that it's within their construct? And that's a great segue to our next section of the show, but I am just going to take a quick pause so we can hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. 
Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Alrighty, welcome back to the show. In the second half, we're actually diving deeper into the role of banks. So Edward was just talking about, would you rather uh, buy crypto from your bank or somebody you trust or somebody that can uh, internally start to think about how they how they manage that space? And to your point that you were making, Edward, do we need to educate or is the role in product design? Uh, consumers typically respond very poorly to uh, education materials. And despite um, much of what regulators do is insist on certain ways of wording things in terms and conditions, or how um, APYs are displayed. Consumers don't actually understand that. So it might be it might help you meet regulation, but it's also ineffective. What really does work is helping consumers through good product design choices um, and through behavioral uh, psychology, things like nudges and defaults. So really, uh, I want to kind of go actually back to Kai here. What role can uh, banks start to play in this space, do you think? And and is it sort of that uh, almost Sherpa type of uh, role in, in in the marketplace? Yeah. So so first, I, I think there is an interesting notion to, to Edward's point of, you know, banks can see the demand that consumers have for crypto. They see their consumers buying crypto via ACH or wire or debit cards. And then what they're realizing is that the companies that are selling crypto are also starting to offer more features that could compete with banks. And so now that Coinbase is offering a debit card, you have BlockFi, the credit card, you, know, you could get your paycheck deposited into Coinbase. And so it's not that you know people are going and spending money someplace, but of course they're going to come back to the bank. There is some risk that they might go and become, you know, have Coinbase as their primary financial account. Uh, so I, I think it's really a question of, can banks integrate crypto and crypto native features connected to their core financial products before crypto companies that have great crypto features can be able to replicate you know, some of those you know, mainstream products, things like bill pay. You know, it's hard to switch your bank before you have a way to, to pay your bills. And banks already have the trust with consumers. They already have the relationships. And so it's it's like you know, the same way that there were these digital transformations, now it's a, a crypto transformation of can you embed features that your customers want in a safe and secure way next to all of the value you provide for them? And I think that's going to be the debate to see who could do that. Emily, curious your, your thoughts on, on that frame. Yeah, just, I mean, so last week I was actually speaking to um, Jason Guthrie, who heads digital assets at Wisdom Tree, which provides crypto ETPs in, in a few dis European exchanges. 
Um, and he was talking about kind of the adoption curve of crypto. So if you look at the technology adoption curve, it starts off with the with the early adopters and the innovators. Then you kind of move on to those people who are wanting to play around in technology but didn't necessarily invent it. And then right at the top of the hype curve, you'd have it starting to go mainstream. But before you hit that top part, there's something called the chasm, um, where you traditionally get products that start getting really exciting and then maybe they just drop off and they never really hit that mainstream um part of the curve and I asked him what what that chasm would be in crypto and he said it's trust um the problem is is that at the moment a lot of crypto companies aren't necessarily being seen as trustworthy by by consumers they think they they believe in the mission they believe in digital assets but what they're hearing from the media and what they're hearing from governments and from regulators is these aren't companies where you should really be thinking about putting a whole load of your money. You shouldn't be putting, you know, all your savings into it. You should be thinking very hard and carefully because you can't necessarily trust them the same way you would a, a bank. Um, and that's that's going to be how it's going to be where the real battle is fought out, I guess, over the next few years, because ultimately, I think what might happen further down the line is if if we do kind of get over that chasm and trust starts to appear in crypto um, among mass consumers, among the mainstream, eventually you're going to get to the point where actually you've come out the other side and it's the high street banks and, and the institutions that don't have the same level of trust as crypto companies do. Because the, this whole idea of you know blockchain being immutable, um, real trust is going to emerge there instead. And then, you know, hopefully we don't have chaos come out the other end, but we'll have to see. Uh, Emily, on that point, there was a great article in The Atlantic that I was reading just earlier today that says trust um, is at an all-time low in institutions. Trust is at an all-time low in the economy. Um, and uh, there was a great economist that they quote that said trust is the uh, lubricant of the economy in the same way that alcohol is the lubricant of a great wedding. You need it in order to be able to reasonably transact, in order to be able to move on. Um, and a simple quote that they gave was uh, the question, do you think people are generally uh, trustworthy uh, or something words to that effect and in the 1980s 45 percent of americans would say yes and now 30 percent of americans would say yes and that is uh something that is really really macro uh, but is affecting institutions much much more than it's affecting individuals uh, and collectives and communities when you have this technology that is trustless it is entirely transparent. It is only uh, technology driven. Yes, it has all of its own flaws. Yes, there are risks of scams. Yes, it's very, very early, but it is appealing to people uh, who generally don't view institutions as trustworthy, who generally have high inflation coming from those institutions. So this narrative of new money, of taking power back is much more appealing than you might realize if you sit inside the walls of a bank and you make multi-million dollar paychecks. And so when you are that person, of course, you would play to trust in the way that defends your own position in the market. And if you work in a regulator, of course, you would talk to trust and you would worry about a 1929 scenario happening to consumers and then being left to try and pick up the pieces. And those are not unreasonable worries to have, especially given the amount of hype in the market. But this trust word that you pointed out, Emily, I think is such a good point that you make. The definition of trust uh, really does depend on how old you are and how wealthy you were historically. And I think that is really, really starting to change. Uh, Edward, I'm interested in your views as you look to the future. Is consumer trust changing? Uh, and how do you see it starting to to really morph? Yeah, I think it goes to Kai's point. I mean, look, this this, this sentiment that um, 
digital assets or crypto and traditional finance are not one and the same, I think it's very anachronistic, right? I mean, they are one and the same. Uh, you know, Coinbase can now let you deposit your, um, you know, your, your paycheck and every single financial institution is looking at crypto in some way. And so they are becoming one and the same. And I think that actually presents quite an interesting potential channel conflict to each other that you're starting to see evolve. And some of these maybe historical partnerships exist because they're actually going after the same customer now. I think in terms of, you know, how that also evolves, I think sometimes we tend to simplify. So, you know, if you look at what you predominantly use a bank for, you use it, um, you put your money there, you pay your bills, and you earn a rate of return. Um, Obviously, we've seen a big growth in DeFi, right? And we've seen the yields that can attract people. I think that's actually driving a lot of kind of um, potential adoption, but also concern is around these DeFi yields and around how this could potentially disrupt savings. When I when I think about DeFi, just for my own portfolio, I basically break it up into three parts. There's a risk-free rate that I think has been kept artificially low by the Fed. There's a, this is quite complex to do right now, premium. And then there's just a risk premium. And I'm, I'm unsure what exactly that risk premium is. If you look at compound, that's 6%. How much of that 6% is actually risk? Um, and I think that is often actually not discussed. Um, but it can also go the inversion, right? As in the risk-free threat rate may at some point be kept artificially high by the Fed. Um, and so this concept that DeFi is going to completely disrupt banks in every single mechanism, I think is actually just the function of where we are right now in, in kind of that, this t- timing point. So, so I think one, one thing that that prompts for me is like, is the, the core construct of a savings account as it has existed for the past you know, 50 years, is that an antiquated product? You know, if you look particularly for millennials and Gen Z consumers, you know, when I talk to to teenagers, they ask them like, "Are you are you putting money in your savings account?" Like, there isn't this level of interest and excitement in the current low interest rate environment that we have today. And so, you know, is there a world where interest rates come back up and now savings accounts become a, a major driver of customer acquisition? You know, maybe, but in the world we're in today. Is it that the savings account is getting unbundled into more and more alternative investments that have higher risk but higher upside? And a lot of consumers are willing to, to make that choice and accept that risk. But the challenge is it's not always clear to them what the risks are. And so is there a role for banks to be able to create that new savings account that is able to communicate risks and give customers more options? in the type of return that they can get. And I think in the past uh, sort of 12, 18 months when banks net interest margin, i.e. the difference they make between the uh, interest they pay savers and the amount they make on lending has been incredibly low because of historic long-term low interest rates. Uh, They've all been looking at how do they move into the investment management space and how do they start to help their customers go a little bit more risk on. So it, it... it's not unreasonable that they would look at a portfolio approach to doing that uh, and having many options for helping customers uh, I, I did, uh, derive more yield. Sort of FDIC insured, FSCS protected is always going to be the the kind of the lowest risk set of accounts, but they're also going to be the lowest return. And in historic low interest rates, as you, as you said, Edward, that is 
really not working for consumers. And if you need to acquire customers at this point, you need to be able to give them some sort of return. And this is not apples to oranges, but some customers I think do get sort of almost marketed into thinking that unless it's FDIC insured, then it's completely risky. You should never touch it which is, of course, absolutely absurd and not true. Um, we've had uh, indexes and tracker funds for, for generations, and generally good practices. You would put your pension in some sort of tracker fund tracking the S&P 500, and it will deliver between 5 and 7% a year. We're quite comfortable telling that to consumers, but we still aren't sure about DeFi, which, is, as you say, Edward, is often performing in a in a similar sort of uh, range in, of return. So there's something interesting there to think about as that portfolio approach starts to emerge uh, as they start to look forward. Uh, Emily, what do you think about uh, the some of the some of the incumbents maybe moving in that direction? Do you think we'll see big banks start to go that way as you look sort of one to five years out? I mean. I think the difficulty, the, the thing that will hold them back is, is, as I said before, it'll be the regulator kind of giving them their go ahead because from the conversations I've had with big banks so far, the only place you really see them taking risks is in the trading divisions. That's where they're willing to play a little bit more because they give those those employees a little bit more of a free reign to kind of experiment and think more widely about the kind of things where the bank can maybe take a first mover advantage but if you're thinking about where they might do things in savings accounts, consumer access, that that's where they like to play at the safest because that's where they're most likely to get the, the biggest rap on the knuckles from the regulator if they took a wrong step. Um, so how I see it moving in the next one to five years, well, I, I guess it entirely depends on, on what happens in that space. I think it's very, very unlikely that we won't have regulators really start to embrace crypto assets, at least in some way, over the next one or two years. Um because the sheer demand from consumers is there and they can't ignore that. And it would be irresponsible to leave those consumers high and dry and just say, no, this is too risky, you can't touch it. Um, because it's too big for them to be able to do that at this point. But whether or not we're going to get to the point where we're going to have banks, for example, if you could think about Barclays offering a savings account that is in crypto and allows you to earn a yield on that money that way. I mean, I'm not sure whether that's just a little bit of a pipe dream at this point. <laughs> And it's also whether or not they can achieve it. Um, Kai, as you look at this, do you think that, uh, to, to Emily's point, it depends where in the bank you're looking. There's there's not just the consumer side, there's other divisions as well. Yes, it absolutely depends where in the bank. And I think it depends where in the world. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see the trends based upon banks in different regions. Um, was it just earlier this month that you know you have you know one of the largest banks uh, in Thailand, uh, I think Siam Commercial, that ended up investing in a crypto exchange called Bitcub. And so, you know, you have markets, particularly some countries in, in Asia Pacific, where banks seem to be uh, less risk averse and, and more, you know, forward thinking or willing to, you know, get into the space in, in different ways. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, Edward, you what have you seen from just a regional perspective? Do you feel like is the U.S. you know lagging behind some other markets in terms of you know banks being willing to to get in? Yeah, I mean, I think the geographical point is, is, is a great one. I mean, I think it also goes back to your point around trust, right? In certain regions of the world, the banks don't necessarily have the same degree of trust as even here, and obviously that trust was was shaken a couple of years ago. Um, I also think it depends on. Um, the technology, right? A lot of people in the United States, although there's a large portion of unbanked, 
Um, largely, we live in a banked society. Um, in other parts of the world, they see crypto potentially as a way to increase adoption of their existing product. And so I think that that also matters as well as the degree of banking, the degree of trust. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of driven um, potentially an increased um, you know, willingness to engage in space outside of the United States. Yeah, I've certainly seen um, some interesting organizations outside uh, the the United States uh, and uh, some from very large banks experimenting, playing with, as Kai said, crypto rewards, starting to test the waters with what's possible uh, in some of these markets and in lots of markets as well where there isn't the sort of banking infrastructure. You can't put a branch and KYC somebody the traditional way, uh, but and you have to support things like mobile airtime and mobile minutes, and you want to be working with remittances. There are consumer problems to solve in, in many of those markets that I think are, are going to be really, really interesting to look at. Uh, Edward, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Emily. How do you see things playing out in the next one to five years on the on the banking side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that every single customer at least in North America, will be able to have some exposure to digital assets through an account that they already have today. And that doesn't mean that, for example, and I really believe in you know bank holding companies, um, so for example, an E-Trade or Charles Schwab, it may not be available at, for example, Morgan Stanley um, at the top. And so I, I do think that's going to increase um, adoption uh, massively. Um, I also think the way that banks will enter the space is that they will try to partner I think that makes a critical difference because right now, if you're a bank and you're thinking about having crypto on balance sheet, there's just so many unknowns beyond just the um, ones that we've discussed. For example, what is Basel going to say about capital requirements with crypto? And so I think that the way that groups will try and enter the space will be more as a partnership model, uh, where they act more as a front end and allocator. Um, and bear in mind, this is still a very small part of the, the entire financial landscape that exists today. And then that gives them the benefit that they can offer crypto, but take off some of the additional burdens that may come with that. So, for example, if you have crypto on your balance sheet as an intangible asset and liability as a bank, that changes things for you. And so I think the way that we're starting to see at least other regulated institutions, so if we look at our broker-dealer clients, that is typically how they've entered the space. And I think you will start to see uh, banks enter in a similar way where they kind of dip their toes and it's slightly more hands-off. I think that's a really interesting point. And banks historically haven't done a great job at partnering with with fintechs. But then their institutional side, just about every major bank you can think of has either invested in or is partnering with somebody for crypto custody. And this marriage between the institutional side of the house and the consumer side is going to be so crucial because the manufacturing has to meet the distribution, the the ability to uh, collect that crypto, to manage it, to custody it, with a, even with a partner, uh, is still going to be important to then serve the, the consumer side of the house. Um, Kai, I'm going to ask you that question. What happens over the next one to five years? How does how do things start to play out? Yeah, I think it's it's going to start with some of these you know, low hurdle use cases like crypto rewards, you know, through third parties that banks can easily integrate and provide access to customers. I think what will be interesting to see is which banks want to make a, a bigger bet on the space and, you know, want to have, you know, infrastructure that they can build many different products and services, you know, on top of. And when I think about, you know, the challenge of a bank going through an RFP for every crypto use case that they might want to offer over the next five years, you know, we can't imagine like what's going to exist in crypto over the next five years. And so it's it's been fascinating seeing 
like, will there be the, you know, fintech banking as a service, you know, forward thinking uh, banks that that really become crypto banks? And we've seen that to some extent with Silvergate and, and Signature and, and others who've really bet on the space, not even just from a consumer perspective, but from a this is where the future growth businesses are going to be. And so I think that's another area that's that's overlooked where it feels like there are people in innovation departments saying, you know, should we do Bitcoin rewards? But you still have a bank that's not willing to offer a checking account, you know, to a crypto exchange that might be a $50 billion company. And so there's some mismatch here of, you know, can banks offer basic services to crypto companies and let consumers buy crypto with their products as kind of a step one? Then can they roll out features like Bitcoin rewards? Then can they get into DeFi? And it doesn't feel like that's happening in as logical of an order you know, as as you would expect. The risk frameworks they're using are the ones they already have for a risk they've never faced before. And I think actually what we're going to need to see is the development of an industry standard set of risk frameworks for banks. And if they were to come forward with that as a set of standards, like leveraging something like global digital finance or many others that are out there in, in, in the world, they would then have a sensible risk policy framework to which they could say confidently to their internal stakeholders, to their leadership, to their shareholders, to the regulator, here is the risk we see. Here is how we intend to manage this risk. Here is how we will protect consumers and the market um, and financial stability in that process. And to be able to really do that thoughtfully, I think, is, is going to be absolutely crucial in the next one to five years. And that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. Um, all that remains is for me to ask, where can people find out more about you? If the listeners have enjoyed what you've had to say, where can they follow up? I'm going to start with you, uh, Emily. You can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole, or you can read all my stories on fnlondon.com. Fantastic. Edward? Uh, you can find me um, on LinkedIn, which is just Edward Woodford, um, or you can drop me an email. Uh, it's just edward at zerohash.com. Fantastic. And Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Fantastic. And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Um, and remember, if you are listening and you like the show, remember to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any shows. Uh, if you want to hear more from us, there's a back catalog there. Just go hit them. The Metaverse show, every company is going to be a crypto company. You guys are loving that. And we're seeing record download numbers. But please do keep telling all of your friends uh, about this show and uh, tell everybody that, you know, this is this is just a little show that can. And if you really love it, go ahead and leave us a review. It helps us so much. Goodbye for now.